the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Air Commodore Tim Alsop currently serves as Commander Air Combat Group based at RAAF Williamtown, Newcastle, New South Wales. Air Combat Group is responsible for the development and preparation of Australia's Air Combat Force for operations. It encompasses some 2,000 personnel, six aircraft types and a special operations combat control capability. Tim joined the RAAF in 1993 after completing a Bachelor of Science at the University of Melbourne. He trained as a pilot and has served on all three operational FA-18 squadrons as well as instructing on PC-9A Mackey and Hawk 127 training aircraft. He currently flies the F-35A Lightning II. In 2019, he deployed to Afghanistan with the Australian Special Operations Task Group as the Offensive Air Support Planner. Later that year, he moved to the United Kingdom and completed the Advanced Command and Staff Course and a Master of Arts with King's College London. As the embedded director of the 609th Combined Air and Space Operations Centre in 2018, Tim oversaw the planning and execution of all coalition air power in the US Central Command area of responsibility, encompassing Syria, Iraq, the Arabian Gulf and also Afghanistan. The geostrategic landscape during that period can best be described as quite complex. In 2019, he completed another 12 months of study at the Australian War College and became a fellow of the Defence Strategic Studies course. Air Commodore Alsop is the patron of both the Air Force Nordic Biathlon Association and the Royal Victorian Aero Club's Young Eagles program, a volunteer organisation that encourages youth to pursue a career in aviation through regular presentations and free introductory flying. Hey, Commodore Tim, also nice to have your company, sir. G'day, Gareth. Now, listen, your Commander Air Combat Group, what is the group's role? The group's role, probably summarised pretty well in the title, but it's it's the boundaries, I guess, of the role that are interesting, the way we're set up. So Air Combat Group effectively takes trained human beings from a whole bunch of different categories. So if we take uh, our technical staff, we take in junior technicians generally who've done their basic trade training and their specialist training. They then come into the front of Air Combat Group and will do training on a specific type So that'll be one of the air combat aircraft generally, the F-35, the F-18F, EA-18G Growler, the PC-21, and the Hawk 127 trainer. And they then become specialists in that particular platform for at least a number of years before they move on as a more senior techo. And similarly for aircrew, we'll take them in as trained pilots and trained air combat officers who have done their generic training. We then bring them in to 79 Squadron and then through the training system that we own to produce fighter crews. And then we then own the squadrons themselves, the fighting units. So uh, number one squadron, the F-18F, got number three, 75 and 77 
uh, the F-35 squadrons with two OCU, two, two operational conversion unit, which does the F-35 training for everyone. Then I've got six squadron with the Growlers, uh, four squadron with both PC-21s for joint terminal attack controller training, but also a very niche capability, combat controllers, which mm-hmm. we can talk about more in a second. And Air Combat Group owns the preparation and the generation of these forces ready to go into combat. I've got two questions then. How do you determine when an, an individual person is being designated to a particular platform? How do you decide? What is the process of decision making that you will go to that platform, you will go to that platform? How is that? Mm, a combination of things. So. I'll talk about pilots, and I'll do that because that was my journey. But the important thing to remember is they are just one very, very small part of what Air Combat Group does. Of course. Uh, It's like a Formula One team. We have a couple of pink bodies in these aircraft, but they don't go anywhere without, without a massive team behind them. So for the pilot continuum, if you like, you'll get to a stage in on pilot's course over in Pierce where a month or so, maybe two months before the end, when you, you're starting to get an idea that you might actually succeed at this at this thing, they have a day where the, the dream sheet comes around. And certainly when I went through, it was a bit of paper and a pen, about 10 boxes, and you just basically write in order of preference where you would like to go. Some people really want to go to C-17s and do incredible things and there's there's just so many options the staff then take those sheets there's a big meeting of the instructors at 2fts and all the executive team and they basically step through it's a board process effectively where they sit down and they review each of the students or each of the trainees look at their strengths and their weaknesses and their preferences they also look at the vacancies in each of these platforms and then the things are racked and stacked. Generally, from there, there's a fantastic dinner or something, a dining in night or a, <laughs> uh, some sort of some sort of big shindig, and there'll be a game show or something along those lines. It's like the Academy Awards, like the Academy Awards, is it? It's a little bit like that, yes, yeah, just with your career at stake. And the winner um, is, <laughs> and the winner is. So listen, we you, you then go through that process. You do a similar thing when you get to the end of seventy six squadron. So you do your Hawk training at 79 for three months in Perth. You then move across to 76 Squadron in Williamtown and you do your intro introductory fighter course where you learn the basics of how to actually fight the aircraft. So low-level navigation, tactical formation, some more advanced other formation flying, night flying, then into basics of 1v1 dogfighting, 2v1 dogfighting, which gets pretty hard, 2v2, and then into some air to surface as well. So shooting the gun dropping bombs, doing all the basic skills. At the end of that course, there's a similar process. There's actually a, another board, and that's done with the officers commanding or the, the, and the commanding officers where they look at each of these candidates at where they want to go, and then they're distributed. There is a very strict policy that the distribution of people coming out of 76 Squadron is even across our platforms. So there's no ranking, there's no F-35 is better than Super Hornet. They have very discrete roles and it's really important that we have the best people distributed across all of those platforms to really squeeze the most out of them. For example then, if you have vacancies in the PC-21s and the F-35s, mm-hmm. is a pilot who you decide goes there as opposed to goes there, is that pilot's skill of equal ability if they were given to the F-35 as opposed to be given to the PC-21? Is that a factor? Yes, but no. The only nuance there is that PC-21 is is different. The PC-21 in Air Combat Group is, is a training platform for training joint terminal attack controllers. So they're generally soldiers, not always, but they are ground-based humans who integrate with combat air. 
So mm-hmm. the other ones will be on the ground calling in okay. uh, air let, support. Let, so PC twenty ones train them. Let's just step back for a second because I'm just mm-hmm. mindful of the person who's listening to you who may not be in the air force but has an interest in following what you're mm-hmm. saying. You are at RAAF base Williamtown, which has been there since 1941. In fact, the 15th of February of 1941. I'm I'm assuming as air combat group, as commander air combat group, you're sitting at the top of the pyramid. Now, that's just yes or no. Is that where you're sitting? Yes, at the top of the building. At the top of the building. Okay, at the top of the building. Now, let's just ask this. Under your umbrella, how many platforms are Mm -hmm. there? There's around 120-ish. It's going up all the time because we take delivery of F-35. And in fact, I've got two arriving today from the States straight out of the factory. And so platform types, as I said before, yep. F-35, Super Hornet, Growler, PC-21 and Hawk. And so how many personnel uh, under your umbrella, individual people, roughly? Oh, in the roughly. order of about eighteen to 1,900. At Williamtown where you are sitting at the top of the building, uh, Mm -hmm. you have a number of flying squadrons or units that are based there. Let me just mention some of them, and you can say they no longer are here, or yes, they are, and this is what's in them. Uh, Number three squadron. Yeah, so they're F-35. They were the first F-35 squadron. And are there three squadrons within that group? So the three squadron is a single squadron. You then got 77 squadron, which is next door. Okay. Uh, actually, literally part of the same building now. F-35? F-35, yep, yes. right. Yep, yep. Then you have number two operational training unit, or that's, conversion unit, sorry, OCU. Used that's to be the OCU. two OCU, is it? Two OCU, yes. Okay, so they used right. to do classic Hornets. They are now the F-35 technical and pilot training uh, squadron. And then we have RAF Base Tyndall has my other F-35 squadron. Okay, well, 75. now, you entered the Air Force, correct me if I'm wrong, in 1993, roughly? Yeah, about uh, 93. Okay, now, you, all I've got to ask, why did you join in 93? What was your reason? I have another uh, question, well, but what was your reason? Hey, listen, it was it was one of those things that, that came in stages. So I, I was very lucky as a, as a very young young kid growing up down south of Melbourne in a place called Mornington, uh, my old man had a great mate called Mark Abacare who used to run the Aussie disposal shop in town. And he had his own aircraft. He's got a, a Mooney, a little single engine, low wing thing out at Tyab, which is a great little, great little place. And dad used to, so we used to spend some time out there. And Mark one day took me flying. And that was probably that first seed where I got to actually see this thing and actually could see the person up the front making so it work. You were hooked. I was hooked there on flying. Dad had a, did a bit of gliding when uh, he was he was younger. I had a uh, another friend of the family who did some flying with me about 10 years later. But I was all over the shop. And the person I credit with the final decision was my old cousin, older cousin, who invited me to the Bicentennial Air Show in 1988 up in Richmond. So I caught a bus overnight from Melbourne by myself, 13-hour bus ride with some fascinating people, and went to Richmond on this stinking hot day and... My cousin was quizzing me. He was saying, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, look, I don't I don't know. I'm in year 10, year 11. I must have been year 11 at the time. I said, oh, I think I want to be an engineer or I want to do this or I want to do that. I'm not really sure, but I do love flying. And as we're talking, a four ship of F-18s turned up and they did a, a mock attack and they were four of them screaming around in a, in a um, simulated strafing pattern over the base. And he just looked at me and said, you're an idiot. Go and do that. That's what you love. You, you never stop talking about it, so go and do it. You convinced me. Now, the second question that came out of that was going to be, that's roughly 19 years ago, thereabouts. You are now mm-hmm. in charge. You are now in mm-hmm. charge. You are now in charge of a lot of people and a lot of 
a lot of ordnance, a lot of yep. different things. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I would assume you have acquired a skill set of leadership, a skill set of being able to instruct and give people who are not your rank mm-hmm. information. What are the qualities of a leader in your role? Wow. Leadership, in my mind, is, and I'm going to try and do this without cliches, it has to be genuine. What I mean by that is you have to do it in a style that fits with with your personality. I remember one of those moments, uh, I was a young instructor at 76 Squadron teaching on the Hawk, and I was about to be promoted to squadron leader, which is the first time really for a pilot that you have to look after anyone but yourself. Terrifying. And sitting down, just chewing the fat with one of the more senior guys, a guy called Chris Hake, he said, whatever you do, don't try and be someone else. Don't try and emulate someone's style. Do it in your way. And again, such simple words, but they really mattered. I'm also very fortunate in this role or in this career that I work with nearly 2,000 people who desperately want to be here, who tried their guts out to get the job and trained very hard to do it. So I just need to smile and wave a lot of the time. I don't think I could find a more motivated, more intelligent, more driven workforce. And so part of my role is to try and move roadblocks out of the way to get at what it is we're trying to achieve, to keep moving this capability forward. Because one of my jobs is to is to set the throttle in the right place for this very complex, very expensive, very advanced set of capabilities and set of humans. Because I have to be able to produce air combat capability tonight for government if it's called on. But I also have to produce air combat capability for government in five years. And I can give you the best capability in the world tonight, but everyone will be broken in about three months because I'm going to use everything. I'm going to flog the aeroplanes. I'm going to work people until they're exhausted. And that doesn't help anyone. So you're betting on yourself some of the times and and occasionally you're pushing it up. Occasionally you're bringing it back a little bit. I follow that. Uh, And so... You, sorry to inter- be rude and interrupt, mm. Tim. You, you, you have answered the question, but clearly in the roles that you've had and with those highly dedicated and highly efficient 2,000 personnel that you are relating to, clearly you do have the leadership qualities that are necessary because they would not follow if you did not have them. And I, I think with the Air Force, I'm sure in the other services as well, that working your way from I've just enrolled through to Air mm-hmm. Commodore, the, the training is such and the, the steps are such that you have the support of those who, who are below you. You have acquired the skill as you've moved up the chain, otherwise you would not have moved up the chain. And this is indicated perhaps by the fact that uh, I think what 2018, you oversaw, correct me if I'm wrong, you oversaw all coalition air power in all the hotspots, Syria, Iraq, the Arabian Gulf and Afghanistan. Now, that's an enormous role. So clearly you've got it. Now, now you can tell me what was your role in those various areas as all coalition air power you're in charge of? That was a, a fascinating six months. So my role over there was I was the director of the 609th Combined Air and Space Operations Centre. So when air power or a force is is deployed as part of a, particularly as part of a coalition, it has to be commanded by a headquarters and directed. There are a number of these headquarters around the world that the US use. And in this case, I was actually embedded with the United States Air Force, uh, as opposed to deploying with an Australian uh, organisation. 
They have a three-star commander who is the Combined Forces Air Component Commander. They are the commander of those combat forces that are assigned to them from all around the world. You have a deputy who's an American two-star, and then my role was the director of the AOC. So responsible for overseeing the execution of all of those things. So at the time, we were very much still in Afghanistan. We were nearing the back end of the destruction of the physical caliphate of Daesh in the the eastern part of Syria. Yemen was in a state of absolute chaos. Now, I wasn't able because of national caveats. I was not involved in Yemen, but I certainly oversaw what was going on there. There was was disaster relief happening at times for, for hurricanes. We had tension in the Arabian Gulf with some of the belligerents that are still there. And then obviously you had Iraq still happening. So a lot of support to the Iraqi government and training happening in Iraq, but also kinetic support and a very complex geopolitical situation in, in Syria, mm. where you've got Russia wedged on the on the western side, the Syrians operating against both ISIS, but also against some of the Syrian democratic forces, private security companies, there was all sorts of things going on in there. How do you feel as a commander of an elite force, the Air Force, having spent mm. time in Afghanistan and Iraq and in Syria, looking back and seeing what we did, the scenario hasn't necessarily changed as big as it could have. How, how does it make you feel? That's a massive question. The Middle East. It is a fascinating place, obviously. It's a very complex place. It has some very deep-seated history that on the surface confounds. Nothing is often as it seems. There's always another layer of the onion going Mm. on over there. There's another, a different relationship. There's something else happening. If you look at, let's say, Afghanistan, I have very mixed emotions about that. Having having served there in two thousand nine as well, and then having and in this job, I was over there as well. For it is, you know, it's a beautiful nation, amazing people. It's just so sad that we are still where we are. But a level of pride in what was done there, and I think the only way I, I rationalise things sometimes is if if we have a look at what Afghanistan might have been had we not gone. I'd like to think that some good came from it, that some advancement, I hope. Well, that is the important answer, and I think you're 100% right. If we hadn't, what would it have what been? If. Yeah, what if? Yep. What if? It's, it's what an interesting if. question. You have, as I said, been in the Air Force for roughly 19 years. The FA-18 and the F-35, do you have a preference and why as a oh, pilot? Everyone asks me that. Of yeah, well, I, well, of course I'm going to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so lucky that I... I have had a career when I, where, I, where I've got to fly both of these aircraft. And actually, sadly, I had my last ride on an F-35 uh, last week. And yes, it was tinged with sadness, but also a sense of, wow, I, I can't believe I got to do that for three years and to experience what is the most stunningly capable thing that ever graced the skies. <laughs> Why was it, has, it your last ride? Because sadly, I have to hand over command the end of this week, oh. you know, three years, and your time's up. Is it the most advanced combat device ever? That's stunning. In what way? Uh, the way it gathers, processes, and displays information is beyond anything we could have imagined, I think. It is continually evolving, and even in the three years I've been involved with it, it's gone through countless software upgrades. It's designed with that in mind. It's always designed to be spiral upgrading, which is very important because when you're at that leading edge of technology, things change fast. 
from a piloting point of view, it's just a beautiful aeroplane to fly. I mean, it's the biggest engine ever put in a fighter. It's a 42,000-pound thrust engine that's been derated to about, down to only 39,000 pounds. It just gets up and goes. The view from that cockpit, you're leaning back and your, your ejection seat, it sort of tilts back about 30 degrees. Uh, it's very, it's a lot of F-16 DNA in the design and the human machine interface, including the, the seat lying back, the side stick and a lot of the, the mechanisation. But the view is stunning. The helmet displays all of your information to you. There's no heads-up display. It's all in your helmet. So it's it's a virtual heads-up display. You As you move your your gaze through the middle, you see a heads-up display, but it's not really there. And then as you move away, you have different amounts of information. At night, you now have the, the full hemispherical night vision capability where by a couple of flicks of the button, a couple of switches, you have a, an infrared or a night image is actually projected into your mm. visor mm. and you can look down at your legs and you see the towns going past. It's bizarre. Wow. Um, Was it intended to be a device that confronts the enemy many, many kilometres away and not necessarily to be a dogfighting device or is both built into its DNA? Well, it's built to do everything. Got to be a bit careful with my words. It can do things a long way away. It can do other things as well. It's a multi-role aircraft, and actually it's an interesting point because we do very jealously protect the way, not the beeps and squeaks, that's very important that we protect the, the technical nature of this thing, but we're also very careful about advertising or discussing openly how we fight this thing how we employ it. It's got a few tricks up its sleeve and it's a very different thought process than flying the Hornet. From a flying point of view, that thing is it's just so much fun. It can turn on a dime. You know, a dog fights beautifully. It was, you intimidate people with your nose. It, it just does, it does things that a lot of aeroplanes don't do. But when, when you're fighting in a, in a Hornet, for example, or a fourth-gen aircraft, it's very visceral. It's very loud and, and aggressive. It's it's a lot of getting high and getting fast and basically running at people and throwing rocks at them and then running away and, and shouting and beating your chest. It's very visible. When you transition across to something like F-35, you have to stop and rethink what you're doing. You're now very much in a in a mindset that you're, you're sitting back in your Jason recliner, you're watching the big iPad, and you're building knowledge, you're building awareness of what is happening in the battle space. You're monitoring what everyone else is doing, and then occasionally you look for something that hasn't been fixed yet. You don't rage over there and shout and beat your chest, but you sneak over and you stab them in the neck and then you sneak back. There's an old expression when you have a, a good friend, you, you say, I definitely go to war with that person. Would you definitely go to war if you had the F-35 in your pocket? Of course, it's 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 designed for that. But importantly, a combat group is not about just F thirty five. It's about a combination of things. We're actually very fortunate in Australia that the combination that we have in our air force is is very unique. The fact that we have F thirty five A, effectively a US Air Force common or line of, line of thinking. We have the uh, Super Hornet, so F eighteen F which is a completely different aircraft to the classic Hornet. It, mm -hmm. it looks similar. It's Again, the DNA is all over it, but it's physically bigger. It's just a, a generation ahead of mm. what classic was. That's US Navy. In its DNA is the concept of war at sea and of maritime problems, which for Australia is very important. Then you've got the Growler, the EA-18G. When you start to combine all of these things and you throw in wedge tails and tankers and, and yes. all sorts of other things, 
you've got an incredibly potent force that starts to put layers on layers on layers to be able to unpick some very, very complex problems. Mm. Let me ask you some things that if you can't answer because of government secrets, etc., yeah, sure. please move yep. on. There's a whole lot of talk in, in the press these days about the Navy and getting nuclear-powered submarines, etc., etc. And I know the Army looks at the possibility of tanks and helicopters, mm-hmm. but most recently I read that our Defence Minister, the Political Defence Minister, has suggested that a number of things. One, the Royal Australian Air Force Base at Darwin is to be expanded to accommodate uh, imports from the United States of America, and maybe they might be B-52s or not, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's even said he might think about buying the B-21, the Raider. Well, we'll come to that in a second. But could I ask you what you can tell me? What does the RAAF need right now that it hasn't got? Wow. it's an interesting question because, and it's, it's going to be one that I'm almost not going to be able to answer because what we do have is a is a really robust system of I own the capability for right now, but then we have a whole team, many of whom actually are from here, who've who are on posting cycles to yep. Canberra or have yep. moved through the through the chain, mainly based in Canberra, but they look at the future of Australia's defence problem. They look at it very, very deeply, and they do it as part of the whole of the ADF joint problem, and they then look at where those gaps and opportunities are, and that's what steers then the decision-making into, okay, what do we need next? Do we extend an aircraft? Do we look for a new weapon because there's something out there that we can't do at the moment? That process is, is very robust, very well thought through, and it's very collaborative as well. They seek input from from all over the place, particularly from the subject matter experts in, in various fields. And you end up then with a roadmap to our future acquisitions. It would be inappropriate of me to say this or that, seven more of these things or five of those. Many, many of the people I've spoken to from the Air Force have told me how mm. joyous it is and commendable it is to work with the United States of America, to go to the United States with the United States Air Force and interact with them. Mm -hmm. Is that relationship between – now, I know we've got Australia, the UK and the US and AUKUS and maybe even Japan's going to join that. I know we've got that. But let's just stay with the United States. If we expand the the Darwin Air Force Base, is working with the United States of America in Air Force central to what we must continue to do? Absolutely. We have an incredibly deep and long history with the US and many other countries as well. But we have openly stated that we have closely tied ourselves to US and US capability, not exclusively, but as a foundational relationship that is here for the long run. So if you look at things like, well, look at look at our force mix. It is almost, so from the air combat world, it is is almost exclusively US sourced equipment, complemented there with UK lead-in fighter training aircraft, so the Hawk 127, which we, uh, we've we had incredible service from over many years, and that's in the process of being re-engined to take us out to at least about 2032. That'll be great, actually. More fuel-efficient engines, a little bit, little bit more thrust. It brings them into a digital control, but we are deeply US-linked. I've got to ask, the better side of Tim, the personal <laughs> side of Tim, if you had to look back in your career from today back to 1993, could you tell me three things that you are most proud of? We could get very deep here. 
there's being part of something that's bigger than yourself, of being part of this thing that, that is full of people who are so driven and want to be there that it's infectious. It's being part of that and not being, you know, particularly in the fighter squadron, it is not like the movies where the impression you get is that it's 15 or 16 individuals all trying to be the best and win something. No, no, no. It's, it's about being part of a team, a cohesive team, not of aircrew, but of the whole system where the squadron, when it's working, it hums. The maintenance produces more jets than you can use. The EXO has a flying program that brings everyone through their upgrades and, and moves people through different levels of leadership. And you end up going away to a major exercise and the proof's often in the pudding there. You you, you come back and go, wow, I think we're, we're doing well because we just mm -hmm. got to test it at something like Red Flag and it works. So being part of that is something I didn't really expect back then. Commanding a squadron, I was very lucky to be the commander of Three Squadron a few years ago now. That is often described as the pinnacle, and it is probably one of the most memorable jobs because you are, as a wing commander, squadron commander, CO, you own that machine, but you're in direct contact with the people. You've got 180 or so sure. Sure. people. You have great control, incredibly satisfying, also often tragically sad and impossible and difficult and horrible, but also incredibly rewarding. I want to thank you, A, for taking the time to chat today, but I want to thank you more importantly for being the kind of person you are and your career is indicative certainly to me that the second oldest Air Force in the world, the Australian Air Force, is being organised, run and directed by an incredible group of people at all levels, be they crew, be they engineer, be they pilot, be they teacher, be they whatever, we are so lucky with such a small country to punch so far above our weight and it is because of people like you. So I want to commend you on that fact and thank you so much and I hope your career, your 19 year in the career in the Royal Australian Air Force ends up being 39 years. So, sir... Thank you for your time today. Hey, thanks, Gareth. It's been great. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.